Father in heaven, we are here today to receive from you, believing that your word is like food for our souls, believing that it helps to recalibrate our minds and our hearts after a week spent in a culture that is broken and would take our souls and our hearts, and we want today to be reestablished and reminded of the importance of living godly, holy lives. We thank you for the ability to be together, and we pray that you would speak to us. I I pray you'd help me to communicate very clearly what this passage says. I thank you for the personal reminder contained within these verses. And so, bearing the mantle of that text, I pray that you would anoint what I say and that my words would fit with your heart for your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Dave Kraft, in his book, Leaders Who Last, recounts the story of a bank president who had a mysterious habit every morning. He writes, Before his retirement, this gentleman had a morning routine that mystified his employees. First thing each morning, this bank president would walk to his desk, take a key out of his coat pocket, open a small drawer in his desk, look in it for a few seconds, and then lock it and begin his duties. The Monday morning after his retirement, the new bank president quickly went to the prior president's desk. With all of the employees gathered around, he took the key and opened the secret drawer. And in that drawer was a small note with the words, credits to the right, debits to the left. (laughs) Now, if you don't know why that's funny, you don't know banker humor, okay? And you probably don't balance your checkbook. but. (laughs) But Kraft then makes his point, and it's this. The guiding principle for the bank president's work was simple, basic, and foundational. Credits to the right, debits to the left. It's the basics of banking. So what about church ministry? What about pastoral ministry? What are the simple, basic, foundational elements that relate to the church? What what would be in our conversation this morning similar to what the bank president put in his drawer? This is a really important question, friends, because... um, Church ministry, as we know it, is very important, very significant, and perpetually changing. You see, the reality is is the church has a mission that is eternal in its importance. Secondly, there are people who lead the ministry, and so it's important that those people know what the foundation and basic principles are. But there's a third reason why this question is so important, and it's this. Expectations or the ideas of what a pastor should be and do are constantly changing. And in particular, in our culture, sometimes they change in ways that aren't so helpful. What do I mean by that? What what do I mean that they're changing in a way that's not so helpful? Let me explain this. See, we want our pastors to be biblical and godly. But we also want them to be great communicators and excellent writers and charismatic leaders and compassionate friends and accessible and focused. 
We want them to be articulate but not plastic, disciplined but not impersonal, visionary but not naive, strong but not pushy. And the problem with that list is it's impossible. Nobody can live up to that. No one can live up to what people either expect or, frankly, even what they demand. And this internal internal and also external pressure can become what John Piper calls a carnival of mirrors. He writes this, What begins as a searching introspection for the sake of holiness and humility gradually becomes for various reasons a carnival of mirrors in your soul. You look in one and you're short and fat. You look in another, you're tall and skinny. You look in another and you're upside down. And the horrible feeling begins to break over you that you don't know who you are anymore. The center is not holding. Now don't freak out and don't get me wrong. I love pastoral ministry and I love the church with all my heart. But let me let you in on a little secret. Pastoral ministry by its very nature is incredibly personal and it is hard at times to remember what the basics and what the non-negotiables really are. And friends, this is why 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16, is so incredibly helpful. It's it's helpful for me personally. It's been helpful to walk through this text. It's helpful for all of our pastors and elders. And it's also helpful, frankly, for you as a congregation. Because in the midst of crisis, challenges, or just kind of normal church life, Paul gives Timothy and us here a series of commands that should frame his pastoral ministry and even frame his identity. So this morning we're going to look at ten different commands for pastoral ministry. Ten imperatives that Paul gives this young pastor. And by them I hope to help us understand what are really the basics or the foundational realities of what a pastor should be and do. Similar to what a bank president is to do. Credits to the right, debits to the left. So this morning we're going to look at these ten different commands. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in the middle of a study of the book of 1 Timothy, a book that Paul, the apostle, wrote to a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. Right now we're in the middle of chapter 4, which is a chapter in which Timothy is charged with dealing with false teaching that had located it, uh, located itself in um, some leaders within that church. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen First Timothy examine um, this whole idea of what true teaching should look like and how he should warn his people about the possibility of teaching that could lead them astray. And then last week, we saw that personal godliness is actually a strategy for ministry, that personal godliness is the fuel for ministry, and that godliness is based upon feeding on the Word a level of intentionality in regards to the personal and spiritual disciplines, and then also hoping in God. Our text this morning captures what the ten things that Paul wants Timothy to do. Think of him almost like a coach before a big game. He's going to give Timothy, here's the playbook, here's what you do, here are the things that should define you and your ministry. So there's ten imperatives, let's look at them. The first one is this, he tells Timothy, be authoritative text begins in verse 11. Command and teach these things. The first word, the word command that we see here is one that from our standpoint and from my vantage point is one that is not that culturally familiar to us. The idea of command. It it used to be. 
but because of pastoral misuse, meaning there were times when pastors said, thus says the Lord, and the Lord didn't say thus. Or pastors who told their people what to think instead of teaching them how to think. Or just simply said to them, just believe me and don't ask questions. Because of pastoral misuse and also because of a postmodern culture that takes nothing at face value, let alone people in positions of authority or um, those who have been given that authority. Our culture just simply doesn't take that for granted. The result is that the pastoral office is not seen as authoritative as what it used to be. Now, there are some pockets that this still is retained. For instance, in our senior citizens, African-American community, there's still a high respect, a high regard for pastoral office. But for the most part, across the board, this is not the cultural norm. So when we hear the word command, it's important to understand what this word actually means. The word is a term of power. It carries a connotation of military or judicial order. It means to announce It means to proclaim. It means to declare. The the word refers to that which should be done. For instance, in the book of Acts 17.30, it says, God commands all people everywhere to turn away from their evil ways. So that command is what God does. Or Mark chapter 8 and verse 6, when Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the grass. The idea is that there is something important that must be communicated because of the urgency or the necessity of the moment. And this is what pastoral ministry is, is essentially communicating urgent and important news. Since the church possesses the most important news in all of the world, which is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In other words, what we talk about and what we circle around today is the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, between forgiveness and judgment. That's the message the church has. And because this is eternally important news, pastors are to see themselves as heralds, not just buddies, not just persuaders. Not just teachers, but as heralds who proclaim the very word of God. The authority doesn't come from the person or even the office. It comes, the authority comes from the weightiness of the word. It comes from the depth and the significance of the text. What that means for you practically, even this morning, is this. When a sermon or when someone's counsel from the scriptures lines up, Meaning, if what I say and if what the Bible says line up, then you as a listener must treat it as the authoritative command of God, a word from God to you. And I hope that's one of the reasons why you've come this morning, not just to be encouraged, not just to sing, not just to be able to meet with people that you know. All those are good things. But at the end of the day, I hope that there was a longing in your soul that when you woke up and you thought, it's the Lord's day, I need to hear from God. And we hear from God through His Word. We should listen to it as the authoritative command from the living God. But there's a sense that we've kind of lost this sense of what the authoritativeness of preaching really is. When I visited Ukraine about two years ago, one of the pastors gave me a memento, something to take home with me to remind me about his country, and boy, did he give me a doozy. Here's what he gave me. When he gave this to me, I was like, whoa, 
How am I going to get that on the plane, right? So, <laughs> and I was like, what is it? I thought maybe he's giving me some sort of medieval um, armament or something of that sort. I mean, this is a foreboding club, is it not? You certainly don't want to, you know, test your tires with it or, uh, well, anyways, you don't want to do anything with it. This is a dangerous deal. It's, and I said, what is it? And he explained to me, this is what's called a pastoral rod of authority. He had my attention. I said, well, how do you use it? How do you, how do you use this bad boy? And he said, well, when someone was ordained into the ministry in Ukrainian culture, they would give them this rod of authority, and it was a symbol of being given their pastoral office. And in church history, the pastors would have their picture taken with it, as you can imagine. It's a foreboding club, isn't it? So I thought I'm going to hand this to the discipline committee as their gavel. So... Yeah. The fact remains that as a foreboding weapon or a tool or a symbol, it looks rather ominous. But I think the fact remains underneath it, there's an important point for us to consider, is that we often don't think, for a number of reasons, of pastoral ministry as as an authoritative role. And maybe we need to. So when Paul talks to Timothy about his role in this church, he calls him, to be an authority. He says, command these things. Pastors are to deliver the word of God with authority. Secondly, not only is he to command, but he's also to teach. So not only to be authoritative, but also to be instructive. This, this balances out the strong command orientation that we heard in the previous point. Kind of balances it out. That ministry is not just supposed to be about perpetually telling people what to do or commanding them towards the right actions, there must also be a teaching that is helpful. What Paul's referring to here, I think, is the nature of pastoral ministry in regards to positive instruction, that we're not only to tell people what they aren't to do, we're to tell them what they should do. That we not only are to tell people what they should put off, but we're also to tell them what they should put on. And this is good instruction not just for pastors, but for Sunday school teachers, for small group leaders, and for that matter, for parents and grandparents. You have to tell people not only what they should not do, but you also have to tell them what they should replace it with. To put off means you also must put something on. A great illustration of this is in the book of Colossians, where the Apostle Paul puts it this way, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Put these things away, but what do you replace them with? Answer, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect peace, in perfect harmony. See, so it's not enough just for your kids to not fight, to not argue, to not swear, not to say bad things, but we also have to teach them what they are to put on, what positive characteristics, what, what God-honoring attributes should be a part of their world and their life. So pastors are not, are not only to warn people about things that are wrong, but also teach them what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable, what's excellent, what's praiseworthy. Churches and pastors cannot be known just for what they're against. You may have grown up in a church like that or a home like that. They're against everybody and everything. And their their sermons are all about what they're against. They're against this and against this and against that. And the reality is churches and pastors can't be against everything and should not be known only for what they're against. They have to be against some things, but the church also must be known for what she is for. 
So pastors are to be, ministry leaders are to be authoritative, but they're also to be instructive. Here's the third thing. They are to be admirable. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So the next phrase gives us a hint of some of the challenges that Timothy probably was facing in the city of Ephesus. He sent him as a young assistant to this church to try and right some of the problems, particularly in regards to church leadership. And Timothy was a young man. And no doubt the church leaders, in resisting Timothy's attempts to correct their doctrine, likely went after him with something that he couldn't control and something that was very obvious and that he was too young. Therefore, Paul says, do not neglect the gift, or or rather don't let anyone despise you, Verse 12, for your youth, but set the believers an example. You know, it's funny, people are people, whether it's uh, in Timothy's day, in our day, or in the days of the Puritans, there was a, a Puritan pastor named Herbert Palmer who was fresh out of Cambridge University, and he was also uh, vertically challenged. He was short in stature. He climbed into the pulpit for a first time and heard a woman in the audience loudly say, Alas, what shall this child say to us? I bet he wanted a club like that. <laughs> so what do you do? What do you do in that scenario? You can't change how tall you are. You can't change your age. What does it mean, don't let them despise you for your youth? How do you not let someone despise you? Well, the answer is, is that Timothy's credibility was going to have to come from someplace other than his experience. He was not to be held back by what people thought of his age. Instead, he was to be respected because of the substance of his life. One translator put it this way, let the gravity of thy age supply the want of years. Timothy's maturity was to be the admirable quality of his life. They we were to see his life and were to admire him, to respect him. And as well, I'm sure that Paul had an audience even beyond Timothy in mind when he wrote this because he knew full well that Timothy or somebody in that church would be reading this letter to the congregation. So while he speaks to Timothy, he's also speaking to the audience of that church that they ought not to despise him because he's young. He's speaking to the church about how they are to treat this young pastor. Timothy was to be admirable. That was his role. The church's role is they were to be respectful. So be admirable. Fourth, calls for Timothy to be an example. This fourth imperative, this fourth command, helps us understand the way in which Timothy was to be admirable. Since his credibility could not come merely from his age, he needed to be an example in many, many areas. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. By the way, this is the theme verse for our youth ministry. Weren't you just blessed today by seeing those teenagers read the Scriptures? That was so wonderful, wasn't it? Amen. You know, when, uh, when I'm watching them read the Scriptures, I'm just reminded of first the weightiness of what they're reading. The, 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 the depth of what it is that uh, they're communicating to us and yet also their youthfulness. In some cases, I was thinking, boy, Lord, help that verse to get into that kid's soul forever. And in other cases, I'm thinking, you have no idea what you just read <laughs> and how hard it is to live that out. So grateful that our youth ministry is focused with a vision 
of being an example to all of the believers. And that a church needs both old folks who have lots of years of experience and young people who have lots of naivete. Because when you're young and youthful, you can have a vision for what could be. And when you're older, experience, you begin to doubt, will that really ever happen? Well, the church needs both to balance one another out. Paul says to Timothy, he's to be an example. And he lists five different areas. He's to be an example in his speech. This refers to everyday conversation, how he talks. And he's to be an example by his words. Secondly, by his conduct, he's referring here to the totality of a person's character, the totality of a person's life, their general behavior. In other words, what is the man known for? He's to be an example in love, likely because of the fact that these false teachers were guilty of greedy, self-centered behavior. Paul calls Timothy, as a minister of the gospel, to operate from love and selflessness. Faith likely refers to Timothy's own faith, his walk with the Lord, his his personal trustworthiness. And then also purity. So speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. 1 Timothy 5.2, we'll look at this in a few weeks. He uses this same phrase to refer to the way in which Timothy is to treat younger women. So he's a pastor, and he has to shepherd younger women. And he's to treat them as sisters. In other words, the meaning of this word creates a clear sense that Paul is talking about sexual purity, about chastity, about moral trustworthiness, that he is to be a model of moral purity. Folks, this is what you should pray for in regards to our young people, for our single adults, for our aspiring leaders, for our pastors and elders. We we live in morally perilous times and a, and, a, and a person's godliness is the basis of all ministry robert murray mcchain i don't know if you're familiar with that name he was a, a pastor who died at age 30 he developed a bible reading plan the one that i'm using this year it's a great bible reading method he um allegedly his preaching bible was marked with all sorts of uh, watermarks because he wept so often when he was preaching. God's hand was on McChain in a powerful way, and the Lord took him early. But he said this, My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. I I can't think of hardly any pastoral book on, on, on pastoral leadership that I've read in the last five years that would lead with that kind of chapter. There's a lot of great things that have written, but the idea that my people's greatest need is my personal holiness is a theme, frankly, that's almost lost in the midst of our culture. Not that people would say ungodliness or unholiness is is warranted, but the priority of this is somehow moving further and further down the ranks of the list. The best way to stop people from looking down on you is to make sure they look up to you. So Timothy is to be an example Number five, he's to be committed to the Scriptures. He's to be committed to the Scriptures. Until I come, this is verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So the fifth command is connected to the centrality of the Word in pastoral ministry. And frankly, it would be hard for me to overemphasize the importance of this point. This point being that the Word of God must be central in the pastor's heart, in his ministry, and in the life of the church. 
you have your Bible, look over at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Or you can just read it in the manuscript. I love this text because it speaks with such clarity about the thread that is to be woven through pastoral ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Paul says this, Preach the Word. There's the thread. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. One of the joys of um, being on the other side of that great hill of 40, that slow slide towards death, is it... It gives one a sense of history and perspective, knowing that death is coming so soon. And having been in a church previously for about 12 years, it it's very interesting to note that you have good seasons and bad seasons. So I've been in season and out of seasons. I've been in financial bounty. I've been in financial bruisings. I've been in the middle of controversies, been in the middle of great seasons of peace. When things were going great attendance-wise, when things were in the tank, when people were really happy, when they were really mad. I've been in all sorts of seasons. And you know what is the constant thread that, that goes through all of those seasons? It is the declaration of the Word that you, preach this, that you preach the Word in season and out of season. Regardless of where things are going up or down, or things are sideways or backwards or upside down, you just keep declaring and preaching the Word of God in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with, and here, oh, I hate this, with complete patience, seriously. Oh, man, do you want my job with complete patience and teaching. Patience, that's the, that's the high call of pastoral ministry. Not only to do this, but to do it with patience. I mean, after all, you know, you can be sinful, but I'm not allowed to be, right? So, so for instance, you can send an email with some horrible things, you know, accusing us of all sorts of things. Not very many of you send those. A few of you do every once in a while. But you send them along and... And deep within my soul, candid confession, I'd love to re- I'd love to respond in like fashion, right? For instance, in my last church, a woman was so upset about something, she said, and we might just leave the church over this. And I wanted to respond back, well, maybe I'll leave the church and tell it was your fault, right? So, <laughs> and I just couldn't push the send button. I just... No, see, I have to I have to be godly, right? I got to respond in a Christ-like way with complete patience and teaching. Oh, that's so hard. That's why we're broken and contrite in heart because it is the requirement of the ministry. So through every season of life, the faithful heralding—that's what preaching is. It's the heralding of the word of God is to be the consistent thread. Timothy is to be committed to the scriptures. That word is the word devote. It means to continue with close attention. It means to be committed to, to give yourself entirely to something. That there's this intensity or bottom line commitment to the Scriptures. And it evidences itself in three areas. Look what it says, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture. That's one. To the ex- to exhortation and to teaching. Public reading of Scripture basically means, look, help people to know how to read the Bible. Read to them the Bible. Help them to read the Bible. So most people during Timothy's day didn't have a copy of God's Word. So the only time that they ever heard the Bible was when they gathered together and it was read. So the idea is not just public reading of the Scriptures, but help people to read the Bible. Why? Because historically, whenever the Bible gets into the hands of people and they read it, marvelous things happen. Nations are changed, people are changed, churches are changed. You get the copy of God's Word into people's hands, and when they trust and read the Bible, 
powerful things can take place. So give yourself to the public reading of Scriptures. Next to exhortation, the Greek word is paraklesis, the same word used to describe the role of the Holy Spirit. It's the idea of words about the Word. So we're talking here about sermons or Bible studies or challenges or biblical counseling. Someone who's taking the Word and applying it to your life. And then also to teaching. Refers to instruction in doctrine or the fundamentals of the faith. It's referring here to doctrine. To substances of, 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 substance of what you believe. So the charge of pastors is to build into their people's lives a framework, a solid footing of the understanding of what the Bible is all about. That's why two weekends ago we had think. Because we want you to think. We want you to be theologically informed. Not just to know answers to theological questions, but so that your faith will last all the way to the end in the midst of a very challenging culture and world. This last week I heard a very distressing news story on NPR. It was about the challenges surrounding the Crystal Cathedral. Some of you may know that church in California, a church that was founded by Robert Schuller in 1955. It was known for its self-help, positive thinking, teaching. It became, justifiably so, kind of like the prime example of how a church can go south when it loses the gospel and it begins to begin teaching a psychologized, believe-in-yourself message. Two years ago, the church filed bankruptcy, and a local Catholic diocese bought the building. Last weekend, Schuler's daughter, who is the senior pastor of the congregation, announced that she was leaving, taking the choir and some of the staff to a new place of worship. Now, as shocking and as terrible as all of that is, with this kind of sad story of what happens... It was the commentary by Jonathan Walton, an assistant professor at Harvard Divinity School, that really struck me. Here's what he said. His assessment about how the church ran aground was this. I think that this is the quintessential example of a failure to institutionalize charismatic leadership so the church can stand the test of time. Really? That's the problem? The problem is a failure to institutionalize charismatic leadership. I have a different perspective. I think this is the quintessential example of a failure to institutionalize biblical teaching and solid doctrine so that the church can stand the test of time. There's a world of difference. I'm glad you agree with this because, listen to me, charismatic leadership doesn't create longevity and it doesn't create security, but a commitment to the Word of God does. And whether it's this church or a church you grew up in, I'm telling you, without a commitment to the Scriptures, you are on shaky ground. Your family's on shaky ground. Your marriage is on shaky ground. Without the Word of God, there is no sure footing In fact, those who have been around College Park for years know that like every church, we've had good seasons and some hard seasons. And the only reason this church is even around anymore and didn't implode in some of those hard seasons is because the faithful declaration of the Word of God in season and out of season. It was the Word of God by the Spirit of God that kept this place alive. And we got to remember that be committed to the Scriptures is the essence, the heart of what the church is supposed to be and do. Sixth, Timothy is to be a good steward. 
Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. He's thinking back to a season in Timothy's life when the public, the elders laid their hands publicly on Timothy, affirming his abilities, his gifts, and charging him to a particular task of ministry. This is often referred to as ordination. Sometimes can involve a rigorous doctrinal exam and a very official council. Other times it can be an informal ordination where the elders appoint, because of the person's gifts and abilities, appoint them to a particular task, lay their hands on them, and pray for them. The, the point and the goal really of either or is the same for this person and the congregation to realize the gravity and the importance of what is taking place. The pastoral ministry is, in effect, the affirmation of two realms. It's the affirmation of a heavenly calling and a spirit filling where God sets somebody apart and says, this person has been gifted to do this ministry, and the elders of the church recognize it. And between the affirmation of heaven and the affirmation of earth, a mantle comes upon a person for the cause of Christ and the advancement of the gospel. The authority of heaven and earth combine to place a mantle on this person. I remember so well a conversation, more like a charge that I received from my mentor, Dr. James Greer, at my ordination. He gave it to me in the hallway as everyone else was moving into the lunchroom. We were standing there, and I think he grabbed my lapels. At least it felt like he did. And he said this, Mark... For the rest of your life, you must live with two values in mind. First, what must you do on a personal level to maximize the gifts God has given you? And secondly, where is the place where your gifts will have the greatest impact for the kingdom of Christ? And then he said this, Always remember, young man, to whom much is given, much is required. And I have never, ever forgotten those words. So in light of this, Timothy is called to not neglect the gift. What does it mean? It means many things, like developing his giftedness, shepherding his own heart, working hard, persevering through trials, prayerfully choosing the right ministry strategies, and a host of other things. In fact, I think what happens in the text that Paul then begins to give him a list of things in which he ought to be a good steward. And that leads us to number seven, which is that he is to be disciplined. He says, practice these things. The meaning has something to do with a consistent concern or constant, constant cultivation. The NIV renders it, be diligent, new revised, put these things into practice, new American standard, take pains with these things. The variety of words has a common thread, work hard, work hard, be disciplined, that Young guy who hit the sideline jumper in the IU game last night, he practiced that shot over and over and over and over and over for this one moment. And thank God he made it, right? <laughs> I just had to throw that in, sorry. This is the athletic metaphor that Paul continues in verse 7. He's urging Timothy to throw all of his energies into this pastoral work. He must know and proclaim the truth, but he also must put this truth into practice. He has to work hard. So a person who takes up the mantle of ministry and takes it seriously, this, this serious concern will show up in one's personal discipline. They have to work hard. This last week, um, Tyler Ritz 
was helping to move some boxes and he said, hey Mark, I've got these seven or eight boxes full of your former sermons. What would you like me to do with them? So he brought them into my office. It was a very kind of somber moment for me as first I saw my entire life's work on a gray cart, which was really sad. And then on the other hand, knowing that all the work had been done and every single cassette reflects hard work done and there's a level of accountability for every single word that's ever been said through my mouth. Why calls for us to work hard because it's serious and important. Even our culture recognizes the importance of discipline. Malcolm Gladwell in his book, The Outliers, The Story of Success, identifies the distinguishing pattern of discipline in great people. Here's what he says. Practice isn't the thing you do once you're good. It's the thing you do that makes you good. Once a musician has enough ability to get into a top music school, the thing that distinguishes one performer over another is how hard he or she works. That's it. What's more, the people at the very top don't just work harder or even much harder than everyone else. They work much, much harder. Or if you have a business background, Jim Collins in his book, Great by Choice, identifies that companies who are great in the midst of chaos have at their core something that he calls fanatic discipline. A consistency of action driven by the inner will to do whatever it takes to create a great outcome no matter how difficult it is. And so here's the thing, if Gladwell and Collins and in athletics and in business and in music, we all have this motivation to be disciplined, shouldn't those whose lives are dedicated to the truth that leads to life also pursue this with all their heart, all their might, and as much discipline as one can possibly muster? And my answer is yes. Number eight, he calls Timothy to be devoted. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. The Eighth Commandment here relates to being all in. To immerse yourself in them or to devote oneself to them. The idea is a continual saturation or to be totally absorbed in the content of what you're dealing with. Charles Spurgeon said that a pastor should be so full of the Bible that if you prick him anywhere, he bleeds Bible. The ministry is too costly, too serious, too painful, and too personal to be half in. It's not a calling that someone clocks in or clocks out of. The calling to pastoral ministry is total and all-encompassing. You give your life. And you do it with joy, but you give your life. Number nine is the call to be watchful. Verse 16 is a strong warning It says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's a present active command. It means that it should be something that Timothy is continually doing. He calls pastors to watch their soul and watch their sermons. To keep a close watch means a continual state of readiness to be aware of any danger or need or error. The idea is to guard against, yes, to guard against even one's own soul and what one says. So pastors are to be on guard for what their souls or their teaching could do. They need to take seriously the nature of their work because unlike other professions, an error in their life or in their teaching could have eternal consequences. Pastoral malpractice has eternal consequences. And therefore, there needs to be constant vigilance. 
There's a book on Puritan prayers, and one of them is about a prayer that a pastor might pray before he steps into a pulpit. And here's how that prayer goes. My master God, I am desired to preach today, but go weak and needy to my task. Give me assistance in preaching and prayer with heart uplifted for grace and unction. Present to my view things pertinent to my subject with fullness of matter and clarity of thought, proper expression, fluency, fervency, a a feeling sense of the things that I preach, and grace to apply them to men's consciences. Keep me conscious all the while of my defects, and let me not gloat in pride over my performance. Keep a close watch of yourself and of your teaching. And here's the final thing, a call to be faithful. There's this call for persistent faithfulness in all of this, especially a faithfulness in watching oneself and in the teaching. The, the call for faithfulness here is recognizing what is at stake. He says, persist in this, for by doing so you will save yourself and your hearers. He's not suggesting here that Timothy will actually create his salvation, but what he is saying is that spiritual perseverance demonstrates that your faith was actually real. John Stott says, Perseverance is not the meritorious cause of salvation, but rather the ultimate evidence of our salvation. This is a call for pastoral faithfulness since the eternal destinies of people are on the line. My heroes in life are old pastors who've made it. By doing this, you will save yourself and your hearers. Pastoral ministry is serious work. It's eternal work because the message of the ministry that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners is the only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. And therefore, it demands faithful perseverance. The reality is this church is all about a single message that Jesus Christ came into the world to pay for the sins of those who would receive him. And this message of the gospel is the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, freedom and bondage, the difference between forgiveness and judgment. And therefore, these ten things need to be weighty. And they are, aren't they? I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of these, and I hope that you do as well. That these are the things that pastors not just could do. These are the things that they must do. These are the things that we are expected to do. These ten are the basics, like credits to the right and debits to the left. This is what pastoral ministry is all about. Therefore, can I just ask you to consider the following? If you're a spiritual leader in any capacity, whether you're involved in leading a small group, an ABF class, you you're a dad, you're a mom, you've got some people around you, you are responsible for people under your care, would you just meditate on this list? I should encourage you to think about what's on this list. Because while pastors in particular are in mind here, I, I think this has broader implications. Secondly, if you aspire to spiritual leadership, and specifically if you aspire to pastoral ministry, then listen, this is the nature of the calling and the demands, and you ought to pray, God, make me like this. Got a son aspiring to be involved in ministry? Got a daughter aspiring to be involved in some sort of, of work of, of ministry that's appropriate for her? You ought to pray this over her. Pray this over him. God, make my kids a godly 
young man or woman. If you care for our church, and if you care for our future, then you ought to pray this over our spiritual leaders. You ought to pray this over our pastors. You ought to pray that as godly men, we would fulfill every single one of these Ten Commands. And I would ask you, implore you, beg you, that you would pray that we would fulfill it all the days of our lives. You know, on a personal note, I just want to tell you how grateful I am to serve as one of the pastors of this church. None of our pastors take the responsibility lightly, and we are grateful and honored that we get to serve our Lord Jesus Christ by serving you. And I know that I speak on behalf of all of them that it is our aim to live out these commands for the glory of Christ and for the good of you, his church. And we would ask, I would ask you to pray with us toward that end. Father, we thank you that your word speaks with such clarity and insight that it establishes a baseline for how we are to think and act. We feel, I feel, the weight of these ten imperatives, and I pray that as a church you would help us to be faithful to what you have called us to be in your word. God, I pray that the message of the gospel that Jesus, by his death, burial, and resurrection, can change a person's life. I pray that that message would be clear and compelling on this Lord's Day and in the thousands of Lord's Day to come until you return. And church, while we're just in a final moment of closing prayer, could I just ask you to take a moment, just a a brief moment, and just to pray, maybe one or two of the characteristics that you've heard. If you just pray that over our church and over our leaders this morning. I just invite you to lift up this church and say, God, help our pastors to be this and to be this. Thank you, Father, for hope that comes through your gracious work through your Son. And thank you that although none of us are perfect, that you have restored our relationship with you by sending your Son to be our Savior and our King. We want to serve him well. And so help us to do that. And thank you for a church that prays and loves and laughs and wants to see your gospel advanced. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of this body during this sliver of history. Help us to serve well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, there'll be some folks up here at the front. If um, you need to talk about this thing, the gospel that I've mentioned, they're here. Something else going on in your life that you need to have someone pray with you about, they're here to bless you and minister to you today, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.